This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You've heard this week and last week that Kelly Leach, who is running for the conservative leadership in Canada, came forward with this idea that when we have immigrants or refugees coming to our country, perhaps we should screen them for Canadian values. Now, the reality is that idea, whether you agree or disagree, essentially seems like it would be impossible to execute. I mean, how do you do that? And even if you do screen someone for a value, how do you establish that they're telling you the truth? No, I'm not going to blow up a building. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I got to take your word for it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but let's put that part of it. Let's put the impossibility of actually doing it in a meaningful way. Let's put that aside for a second, because there's a second issue that has arisen out of this debate, which is the whole idea of our values. Matt Gurney makes a terrific point in today's National Post. He has a piece written, is it un-Canadian to worry that some would-be Canadians may be un-Canadian? Is it un-Canadian to worry some would-be Canadians may be un-Canadian? See, politicians talk about national values all the time, but if we suggest you want to maintain those or narrow down what those values are, you may be impolite, you may be impolitic, you may be politically, politically incorrect. Well, Matt joins me now. We're always glad to have Matt on the show. Matt, thanks for doing this tonight. Anytime. Good to be here. Loved your piece today because it points out one of the great contradictions that we have around here. We will decimate someone in this country verbally if they say or do something that doesn't fit with our quote, quote, Canadian values. But if we actually try and nail down what those Canadian values are, we get all antsy because we're not really sure we can do this without insulting someone. Yeah, and I I also think that, you know, I wonder, and this is maybe in some ways an unsatisfying answer, if our Canadian politeness factors into it as well. I mean, we've grown up in a country where, to the greatest extent possible, we're individual people. And, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, you know, individual rights versus group rights. I, that, that's an issue, and that's an issue when it comes to things like uh, rights tribunals and legislation and things like that. But overall, Canadians are autonomous people, and we do live in a very live-and-let-live country. And sorry, I use the word live too many times in that. Sentence, <laughs> that's point, okay. Um, and I, I think as well, just speaking as a media guy, uh, we in the media, the, the big collective media, we are very hands-off on people's personal lives most of the time, to an extent that European or British, especially politicians, for instance, could never dream of. We're prepared to let people do their own thing so long as it's their own thing. That's the kind of country we have. That's the kind of country I want to have. But the problem is, and you've already put your finger on it, we still believe in stuff. And we might not like to actually you know, enumerate what we believe in or be in people's faces about it, but it doesn't actually take much to fall afoul of Canadian public opinion. And how do we know that? Well, we poll Canadian public opinion. There's polling companies out there all the time that are surveying all 35 million of us, at least in uh, statistically relevant sections. What do we think about abortion? What do we think about freedom of speech? What do we think about religious pluralism? You can come up with a laundry list of these issues, literally hundreds of them, and they're all going to get polled on a fairly regular basis. And there really aren't that many issues I would say, on the fundamental stuff where Canadians are very, very divided. Even on some issues that might surprise people, Canadians are quite uniform. Canadians, on balance, support capital punishment. Canadians, on balance, support access to abortion. 
Now, I'm not saying these are our defining national values. No, far from it. But I think we kind of live in this country where, on the one hand, we talk about Canadian values, but we only talk about them in the abstract. We don't want to actually nail down what they are. And the concern I have, and the concern I think Kelly Leach has as well, even if she's figured out a really stupid way to go about broaching it, and we can talk about the politics of it in a minute, is that if we aren't willing to talk about what our values actually are, how can we stand up for them? And I think that actually is a very fair question to raise. And I think as you're, you're bang on, and the, then follow-up to that obviously then is, well, why do we not? Is it just, as you alluded to, is it just that we are polite and don't want to create any conflict, and by nailing down something like this, we are inevitably going to create conflict? I think that's part of it, but I also think the reality of it is, and this is something that is eternally frustrating to a lot of Canadians, our politicians in this country are... I'm trying to find a bit, think of a nicer word than cowards, but we do, we like to shy away from the the rough stuff. We have a liberal government right now. This is not even a knock on them. This is not a cheap shot. This is a sunny ways government. They don't want right now to be stirring up controversy. They want to be avoiding that. They want to be the feel good liberals for right now. We had a uh, recently a conservative government that, especially on the divisive, controversial social stuff had a ruthlessly non-committal policy. Uh, how often did we hear in his almost 10 years of power of Stephen Harper or his operatives shutting down any dissent within the party on socially controversial issues? The politicians just don't want to touch this stuff. That's why they speak about it in very vague, general terms. The Tories always used to talk about, we'll stand up for Canada's values at home and abroad. What are those values? Don't ask us. The liberals always talking about, oh, we are the party of Canadian values. We're the party of Laurier. We're the party that speaks to the values of uh, the majority of Canadians. Okay, Mr. Prime Minister, what are those values? Well, we'll get back to you as soon as we have our next (laughs) policy convention. Like, nobody wants to talk about this, because as soon as you identify something, there's going to be somebody who doesn't disagree with you. And ultimately... And you're locked into that. Absolutely. And ultimately, this is our fault. I mean, this is not... I'm blaming the politicians on this one. We're a democracy. When the politicians get away with stuff, it's because you, me, and thee have let them. Well, Matt, something else you just said, and you said it right off the top, and I think it's fascinating because it kind of illustrates the conundrum we have here because of all this. One of our great Canadian values, if you're going to call it that, is absolute tolerance. You talk about it, live and let live. Whatever you want to do, live your life however you want to do it. The problem is... There are people and there are groups in this country that don't want everyone to be able to do what they want to do. We have groups that might want to have Sharia law. We have other things. So you end up now that tolerance gets in the way of tolerance. Values now conflict with value. So how do you determine which value is the actual value that you want to put value in? See, watch how deftly I punt that question. Um, You do it basically by having the lowest common denominator values. And I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm not saying that's So is that the value of least resistance? I think that has become the Canadian status quo, and I don't like it. We've seen it already a little bit in Quebec, some of the pushback to it with their charter of values, uh, which I think was a dramatic overreach. And I also think as well we've seen it with things like the face cover ban and burqa ban talk. Quebec has a different political culture on this one. I don't think it's a great one in a lot of ways. But I think it at least gives them a clarity of perception on some of these issues that we might be a little more wishy-washy about in the rest of Canada. But overall, though, you've raised actually a great question. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge something here. It is not only a Muslim problem. And I think, no. you know, before I get nailed for being too politically correct, I think it's a big 
But we don't have, I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, it's an interesting one because Sharia law, honor killings, female genital mutilation, sex-selective abortion, that's a big one we've talked about. And that one, there's a lot of the, uh, that's a lot of the Muslim community, but it's not exclusively that. But you know what? We had a gay marriage battle in this country, too, and a lot of the opposition was evangelical Christianity. So I'm not trying to draw a moral equivalence, and I'm not trying to deny the national security implications of radical Islam, because that's a bad idea. Look to Europe if you need proof of that. But I just think the, comp- the problem is complicated enough and broad enough that maximum tolerance is the workable way to do it at home. The question I then raise, though, we, we have Canadian citizens in this country who have rights. But we can still be picky about those we choose to let in. Do I think Leach's plan is workable? No, I think it's a terrible plan, and I think she's a particularly bad messenger for it because of her own political history. But I don't think it's an offensive notion to float the idea that we should be picky about our immigrants on a basis of ideology as much as we already are on basis of economics. Well, let me read actually a line, a paragraph from your piece today. And again, it's a great piece in the National Post. Uh, Here, you wrote this. What good are values we only speak of in the abstract? And pragmatic objections aside, what's wrong with being as picky about the kind of citizen would-be immigrants would hopefully make as the kind of job they'd work once here? Leach's proposal may be unworkable and certainly is ill-advised given her past, but offensive, un-Canadian, I don't see it. And so the idea is, again, and I, I agree with you on this point, that the idea is, I don't know, I don't see how it is offensive that when someone is coming into our country that we would at least try to get a sense of whether or not they will fit with Canadian values. But to go back to your point, how do you determine that if nobody will actually locked down to a position of what is a Canadian value. Yeah, and I think the problem is as well, if we somehow frog-marched our political leaders into a room and said, we're locking you in here with no food or entertainment (laughs) until you come up with actual Canadian values, they would come up with something, but they would be so boilerplate generic, they wouldn't actually mean anything, there wouldn't be any tangible meaning to them. So we're kind of left in this country groping in the dark, looking for... Kind of the does this feel right test? Is this what we feel is good? Is a, let me interrupt, Matt. Should a value be a feeling? No, um, but I think that's what we've been left with here. And it's interesting just to note that you, in that paragraph you had read, I did draw the allusion to the kind of jobs immigrants work. I mean, whether Canadians like the idea of value screening or not, we already screen the hell out of our immigrants, but we do it for economics. And we are ruthlessly self-interested in that. Canada is a very difficult country to immigrate to. We look at people and are like, do you have the education, the skills, the job training to contribute meaningfully to the Canadian economy? If you do, you've got a shot. If you don't, you're not getting in here, at least legally. We are ruthless about that. And no one apologizes for that. No political party. There's no public outrage about this. We all view that as a matter of genuine national interest. But as soon as it becomes about the ideology or the uh, viewpoints of the citizen as opposed to the kind of job they work, we get really, really squeamish. Again, I don't think anything like a value screening would ever work. I think you could easily beat the system if you tried to put it in place. But I'm just not offended at the idea that maybe Canada does have values, and if we believe in them, maybe they're worth defending. You know who else, though, screens for values? And, and does the exact kind of thing. And, and let me give you an example. It's our politicians. And let me tell you, if you remember, and I know you do, back in the election, 
it was Justin Trudeau who said that every single liberal MP who was going to run had to be pro-abortion and vote pro-abortion on any bill. That was a value screening. It was a demand that you share our values. And there was a big uproar about it. And then they backed off a little and said, okay, well, those who were already MPs can be grandfathered, but the newcomers are going to be screened to make sure their values reflect us. Well, isn't that honestly exactly what we're talking about here? Isn't that uh, on a micro level exactly what we're talking about with newcomers are going to be screened to see if the values adhere to what we've got in place? My friend, again, I don't mean to sound like I'm taking a cheap shot at our current federal government, but it is not unheard of for the federal liberals to take themselves more seriously than they always take the country at large. There's nothing particularly unusual for the liberals setting a higher standards for themselves than they might set for immigrants. But you're absolutely right. And there are actually concrete professions in this country. Forget even politician. You don't think you get value screened before you join a Canadian intelligence agency or police force or the armed forces. You don't think corporations, before you join them in a perhaps sensitive role, scroll through your social media, do personality tests. This stuff happens all the time. There's a teacher right now who's in the news who posted some stuff on Facebook that may have been critical of Muslims, and she's now in the crosshairs. And it's not even the first time we've had this story. It seems to actually be something of a returning back-to-school special. Some teacher somewhere in Ontario steps in it on Facebook. And, again, I don't think it's a practical plan. I think Maxime Bernier, of all people, um, of the Conservative Party from Quebec, he nailed it in a statement he put out where he said there are Western values and there are Canadian values. There's a, a lot of overlap between the two, but they're not necessarily entirely synonymous. And he said there's Western and Canadian values that are worth defending, but the idea of coming up with some sort of test that you're going to do at the immigration stage isn't practical. And I thought that was a great bit of nuance here. For what it's worth, just on the politics of it, though, I don't get the feeling Kelly Leach is backing down on this one. Whatever advantage she sees in this, she still sees it. And it will be very interesting, as a colleague of mine, Michael Dentant, wrote in the Post today as well, It'll be very interesting to see how the Conservatives react to this during their leadership race. This could be a polarizing issue that might not work out well for them in the end. But do you think then, if they're going to stick with this, do you think, and we just, we're just about out of time here, but do you think that somewhere the feeling is then that there is this underlying sense that people may say they're offended by this, they may say they don't like this, they may say it's not really Canadian, but deep down they actually kind of think the idea is not really a bad one? was a way to pragmatically do this, I think a lot of Canadians would have a much more open mind. If there was an easy way to test for mm. this sort of thing, I think there would definitely be a different reaction to this. But as we are right now, I can understand the reaction of both Canadians at large and Conservative Party officials in particular, who aren't wild about the idea of bringing up something as divisive and perhaps polarizing as this when it's not practical anyway. Like you're floating a trial balloon that is literally made of lead. Yeah. It doesn't make you look good. No, the, the, the concept is interesting. As I said off the top, the execution seems to be absolutely impossible because, again, I mean, Matt, you're a, you're a refugee coming into the country, and I say, Matt, are you, um, are you, do you have a hatred towards Canada? Do you plan to do any damage to anybody here? And, I mean, what are you going to say? Yes, I'm, I'm planning to come here and blow up your capital. 
I mean, yeah. it's just it's it's ridiculous to actually try and figure out a way to do it. Unless we're going to waterboard everybody, and we know that's not going to go. That's not an, or anything along those lines yeah. aren't going to go anywhere. I, I would oppose uh, mandatory waterboarding. <laughs> you know, in ten seconds here, because I know we're yes. time. I got a buddy of mine. He's an expert in psychology. He tells me it is possible to screen for hidden biases. I asked him, would it be practical to do that kind of screening at an immigration point of entry? And he said, no way. You need trained professionals with a lot of access to the person being screened. There's just no way to do it for 300,000 people a year. Yeah, if we have the same level of expertise among those screeners as we do at the people at the airport checking our passports, you know it would be a foolproof system. We might as well just surrender. <laughs> That's where I come down to on that one. Matt Gurney uh, wrote the piece, Is it un-Canadian to worry that some would-be Canadians may be un-Canadian? It's a great piece. Go read it in the National Post. It's online today. Matt, thanks for doing this. Anytime. Talk to you. Uh, that's a, again, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion to have because our problem here is that we don't clearly lay out what our values are. And if the number one Canadian value is tolerance, and that seems to, for a lot of people, that seems to be the thing. Just let people do what they want to do. If our number one value is tolerance, you are always then going to have different interpretations of tolerance because I have to tolerate you, but you have to tolerate me. Well, wait a second. We have different points of view. How do we each tolerate each other if our beliefs conflict? And therefore, immediately our value system runs into this huge conundrum because how do you resolve it when deeply held issues, even if we're trying to tolerate each other, if it just doesn't fit? It's a very tough one. Very tough one. Go read that piece, though. It is, it is very, um, it's well worth your time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The World Cup of Hockey practices have started. They're going to start the games. You know, it's this, this the old Canada Cup, basically. They're going to start games in about a week. And when they do, you are going, and the NHL season follows right on the heels of that, you are going to start to hear terms and discussions on things that you may have heard before, you may think you know something about, but probably you don't. Unless you're one of the few who really has been digging deep into hockey analytics, you probably think you might know what puck possession time is, or Corsi, or Fenwick, or these things that'll pop up as you're watching, but you probably, I mean, if you're being honest, you probably don't really no, well, Rob Volman is a guy who runs a website called hockeyabstract.com. It specializes in this kind of stuff. It's loaded with this kind of stuff. And now he's the author of StatShot, the ultimate guide to hockey analytics, a great new book that has just come out that if you are interested in numbers, in hockey, in analytics, you can bury yourself in this and not come up for air for hours and hours and hours. Rob joins me now. Rob, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. How about you, Scott? I'm doing great. Hey, I, I took a, um, I didn't read in slow, intense detail. I took a quick look through your book, though, and I will be reading it. Really, really good stuff that you've put out. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks. Let's, um, let's walk through this slowly for people again. Talking because I think, honestly, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, I think most people who watch hockey don't really have a real honest answer of what it is that you talk about and what it is that you're doing. I, I mean, I, I just don't. Do you, do you disagree? Well, not necessarily. I think that uh, I would agree that um, some people have sort of a passing, you know, comfort, a passing familiarity with some of these terms, but uh, a lot of fans are starting to get thirsty for like a deeper understanding, like to really understand 
what these stats mean and uh, where they apply and where they don't apply and really the limits uh, as well as their applications. Okay, so let's let's go back right to the beginning of this. The real start to analytics in sports, probably it started with baseball, right? Absolutely, it started with baseball about almost forty years ago. Okay, and that and that sport, quite honestly, that is a sport that is perfect for math and for analytics and numbers because you've got a pitcher, you've got a batter. You've got a number of outcomes, but basically one thing is happening at a time, and it's very, in a lot of ways, very predictable what's going to happen. So you you can very easily break baseball down and turn it into an analytics game. Hockey, though, Rob, hockey is a tough one for a lot of people to figure because it is far more random. There's far more things going on. There's guys coming on the on the ice and leaving the ice and coming back. And how do you turn hockey? into the same kind of mathematical equation, basically, as you do for baseball. Well, that's a great way of putting it, because you're absolutely right. I mean, baseball, you've got the pitcher, you've got the batter. They start sort of at zero, and then there's a pitch, and then there's a play, and then it goes back, then it resets. And you're able to basically take each pitch, each play, as a separate segment. Even someone who has no idea, yeah, even someone who has no idea what's going on can figure out what just happened there. Yeah, but in hockey, it's not like that. With the exception of, say, an opening face-off or a, or a shootout, most hockey, most puck battles, I mean, there's thousands of puck battles in a game, and they're all over the ice, and they have sort of an impact on, on the next one. And they're not all one-on-one. Some of them are two-on-one, and they're not all even. Sometimes one team is closer to the puck than another, and sometimes it's not clear what each one is trying to achieve. Uh, whereas in baseball, it's very clear what they're trying to achieve. So... You're right. I mean, there's a real problem there. And up until now, what we've done is we take a look at sort of what happens at a shift level. Like, what what do we expect to happen in that shift? Then what actually did happen? And we make that comparison. But watch the World Cup very carefully, because the World Cup is going to use new technology, new video technology, new puck technology that allow us to track more closely what each player is doing and where the puck is at all times. And something could come of that, that it's more similar to what we see in baseball. What will we learn then, potentially? I mean, obviously we don't know. That's why we're doing this. But potentially, what will we learn from when we see all these new stats and these new numbers that pop up on our screen? What kind of things will this tell us about Sidney Crosby, let's say? We're, we're now monitoring the, the whatever of Sidney Crosby. What will we learn about him that we may not already know? Well, there's all sorts of things, and it can be divided into sort of the, um, sort of the descriptive and the predictive, where, like, some of the things are just interesting trivia. Like, for instance, just like in baseball, when you're watching, you can see where every pitch was located and the speed of the pitch. And now we can find out where all of Sidney's Crosby's shots are going, like where in the net he's aiming for, and, of course, how fast the shot was. And so that's very interesting. But also we can get, you know, more details, more descriptive details about what Crosby's doing when he's on the ice, like how much space is he leaving his opponents or is he being left and what's he doing with that space and where is he going and where's his puck and where's he putting his stick where's he putting his body and i think from that information we can get a sort of a clearer picture of exactly what he's doing when he's on the ice the biggest i think for most people though the most common term they hear when they hear about hockey analytics if they if they're recognizing even that we're talking about hockey analytics it's puck possession that that seems to be the one we hear now all the time that he's a good possession guy he's a good puck possession guy Explain to people what that actually means. And the reason I say that is because of this. If you are a coach, 
the last thing you want is a player who will never pass the puck and possesses the puck all the time. And that's what a lot of people, I think, believe this means, that you're going to hold on to the puck, whereas a great player barely has the puck on his stick. So what does puck possession mean in terms of what we're talking about? Well, you've got to be careful because your first instinct when someone says puck possession, you're assuming that there's a stopwatch and you click it on when a, when a team gets the puck, exactly. and you click it off when they lose the puck. Exactly. And that's not always what the announcer is talking about, what the pundit is talking about. Sometimes they're not talking about that at all. Sometimes they're talking about this other family of metrics, the shot-based metrics, where they're actually looking at the difference in shot attempts uh, when the player is on the ice and say, if a team is taking 55% of the shot attempts, they make the assumption that they have the puck 55% of the time too. And normally that's a relatively safe assumption, but it is a different thing. It's not a stopwatch. It's a measurement of of the shots, which is what Corsi and Fenwick, SAT, that's what all that is. So you want to be careful to see which one they're actually talking about. So is possession, even though, you know, it's the one we know, is it really kind of almost a wrong term, an inaccurate term for what we're talking about? It's more of controlling the game. Yeah, normally when you hear puck possession... It's not what they mean. Normally they're talking about shot-based metrics. But actually, shot-based metrics are better in a sense because puck possession, like you mentioned earlier, that just means you have the puck. It doesn't mean you did anything useful with it. Shot attempts, you actually did something with that possession. You converted that possession into a scoring opportunity of one kind or another. Now, of course, goal-based data is even better because that has even more information. You had possession, you turned that into a scoring opportunity, and... You know, and if you get a goal, chances are it was a high-quality high scoring opportunity. Maybe you had a deflection or a, or a screen or a rebound or it was an odd man rush. So goal data has the most information. Shot-based data has you know, some information, and puck possession has a little bit less. But And again, I'm not trying to harp on this too much. We do hear probably about puck possession if we're watching TV and we're hearing the analysts more than just about anything else. And we hear that teams now, they want guys that are good puck possession guys. They want guys who will who are good at this. Can you be a good hockey player, a good overall player, and be a bad possession guy? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, and there's examples of that. I mean, not all players are possession-based players. Um like for, for, for example, uh, NA, the NHL Network just rated Patrick Keane as the number one hockey player in the world um, in their recent ranking. It was published out today. But Patrick Kane, of course, his possession numbers aren't as good as Jonathan Taves. But the reason Patrick Kane is rated higher is because, of course, he takes very high-quality shots, he makes great plays, and he makes the most of his possession. And you could say the same thing of Alexander Ovechkin or on the defensive side of the ice, Shea Weber. I mean, his puck possession numbers are terrible. But when he's out there on the ice, he really has a way of shutting down opponents and, and uh, sort of making things happen, uh, you know, formally for the Predators, but in the future for Montreal. So there's plenty of examples of players who aren't strong in terms of possession, but still overall contribute better than those who are. Rob, one of the funny things about baseball is that once upon a time, wins was a really meaningful statistic for pitchers. Now, if you talk to a serious baseball analytics guy and you start to fight for wins as something meaningful now, they'll probably either punch you in the face or vomit. I mean, it drives them nuts because they say, well, there's so many other factors involved that wins really is essentially meaningless. They look to other stuff right now. 
So is hockey is hockey doing much the same? Are the are the metrics? Are the analytics? Are the things that we are looking at? Are they constantly changing, or is hockey a lot more of a stable thing as far as the the the, the things that we are studying is what makes a guy good or not? You know, I wish we got rid of wins as well as a goaltending metric. Uh, the classic example is Corey Schneider. Corey Schneider's numbers were just as good as Braden Holtby's and better than Jonathan Quick's. And yet he wasn't a Vezina finalist because New Jersey scored 2.08 goals per game when he started, which was the second lowest in the league. New Jersey never scores when he's on the ice, which is why his wins aren't as high as Holtby's and Quick's. But he's just as good if, uh, as Holtby and probably better than Quick. And I think we should throw away that. In fact, in 1985, that's when baseball introduced quality starts for pitchers. So instead of judging them on wins and losses, John Lowe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, said, why don't we rate starting pitchers by whether they go six innings and keep the opponents to three runs or less? Well, even though I was 10 years old, I applied the same thing to, to hockey. They said, why don't we rate goalies based on whether they play the full 60 minutes and keep their opponents to three goals or less? Now, the modern definition of quality starts is a little bit different. You actually have to have a league average save percentage. So we're looking at your save percentage, not the goals. But it's still the same principle. And from that perspective, Corey Schneider is always among the league leaders in quality start percentage. When you talk about all this stuff, um, would you acknowledge that it is pretty cerebral? That this is this is stuff that it is. It, there is a certain mindset, a certain talent, a certain type of person who is probably going to be really fascinated by this, and it's not necessarily going to spill over to every fan. Well. Yes and no. I mean, I believe that people enjoy sports in their own way. Some people like to know about the equipment the players use. Some people like to know about their diet or exercise. Some people like to know about their hometown and their their family and their junior teams. And some people like to know about their numbers. Everyone has sort of a different way they like to enjoy this amazing sport. But that being said, I don't think that what I described about Corey Schneider, for instance, is particularly cerebral. No, And no. I don't think... That the shot-based metrics, I mean, it's just your shot-based plus-minus. Plus-minus has been around for 50 years. And this is just doing shots instead of goals. It's, there's nothing cerebral about it, really. So, Rob, is the issue then, maybe, if I can put another thought out there, that, you know, when I read through your book, when I, when I was going through parts of it, it's more, and you've done a good job with it, is this more of a communication issue that many of the people who have been doing this work if I dare say, have not been tremendous at communicating the ideas. So they've got this good information. They just can't necessarily bridge the gap to the average fan to understand what they're talking about. I think your book does a good job of that, but there's been a gap there for a while. Well, I think that's fair. I mean, every time something is new, whether it's stats or whether it's sports or whether it's a different field entirely, whenever something is relatively new, it takes time to get the language right. It takes time to present the ideas in the ways that are the most useful. And um, if my book is a little bit more fun to read, it's because I didn't intend this book to be about hockey stats. The book is about hockey, and I use stats. First and foremost, it's a fun book about, you know, my favorite players, my favorite teams, answering fun questions, and I just happen to use stats. If the book were about stats, I would imagine it being a little bit dry, maybe inaccessible, but that's not really what it is. And I think that's where it's actually most effective, is when we write something or or talk about something that we focus on hockey and make stats more of a tool as opposed to the message. Yeah, if it was about stats, it would be a textbook. Right. <laughs> I mean, it would. So, okay, we just have a minute or so left here. Do you get the sense, do you believe that hockey executives, the guys who are making the decisions, 
Do you get the sense that most of them have bought in completely and love this stuff? Or do you get the sense, because a lot of them are old school guys, do you get the sense that they're saying, yeah, I know it's important. I know there's something there. I just don't really know how much I believe in it yet. Well, I personally had discussions, whether it was a small chat or I was actually helping them with something, um, with 18 of the 30 teams. Really? Okay. And that's just me. And there's probably others that maybe are talking to others still. Now, in fairness, I'm usually not talking to the GM. Very rarely am I talking to the GM. Usually it's uh, someone on his staff, but not not him uh, specifically. Uh, so it's be someone in the front office, like the AGM or, or a director of administration or, or player development or scouting or what have you. And so I think there are some teams that are just against analytics, and they're just not using it at all. Ottawa might not be that bad an example of that. Others, um, maybe they're trying to get the low-hanging fruit. They hired a fresh grad or a blogger, paid them very little, keep them in a cubicle. That's where a lot of teams are. But, however, there are some teams at the very top that have actually built an entire department where they have a director and a staff, and they've got programmers and, and data trackers and analysts and, and an entire staff of people educated and trained and experienced in that field. And, and Toronto, for instance, would be a, a more recent example of that. And so most teams, I think, fall in that category where they're just trying to catch the low-hanging fruit with a, with a blogger or a grad student, but there's certainly several now, a growing number, um, that have started to invest you know, more comparably to what they're doing in baseball. Rob, I would love to keep chatting. It's um, uh, People, if they're interested in this, uh, the book is called Stat Shot, S-T-A-T, like statistics, Stat Shot. Um, Rob Volman, V-O-L-L-M-A-N, is the author. You can also get his stuff on hockeyabstract.com if you're interested in that. Um, and again, be watching the World Cup of Hockey because they will. There's a whole bunch of new stuff that they're planning on introducing and showing graphics and other things that will all be statistically based analytics stuff that will be involved in hockey that will hopefully broaden not just our ideas of what is going on in the game, but help us actually, a lot of us, the neophytes, understand the hockey analytics side of things. Rob, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, anytime, Scott. Um, Again, you'll see lots of it. So if you're confused, if you're watching and you're confused, go to hockeyabstract.com and you'll probably get some answers. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So a couple weeks ago, my next guest, who is a longtime CFL referee, I think he has something like 250 CFL games to his credit now, did an NFL game as part of an exchange program between the two leagues. He was working as a sideline official in that one. And I got to tell you, I have wanted to have him on since because I think there is a tremendous discussion to be had about the two leagues, especially when you're on the field and you're seeing it from that perspective. That, of course, would be Dave Foxcroft, who joins me now. Dave, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott. Great. Thanks for having me on here. And uh, you're right. What a better timing, right? We just had the the Labor Day game here in Hamilton, and uh, Tom Valese and his crew did a great job refereeing that game. We have the NFL season that starts up week one this weekend as well. We're heading into week 12 in the CFL, and uh, I'm excited to talk some football with you. Well, i got to tell you, too, when you mentioned Tom Valesi, those who were watching the Labor Day game, there was a, 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 a controversial, not a controversial, there was a questionable play whether there was a roughing the passer uh, down near one of the end zones, and I thought it was hysterical because Tom was literally about two feet away from the quarterback and the guy who hit him, almost jumping on top of the pile, and I thought, if you can't make the right, and he did, but if you can't make the right call from that distance, 
you're in trouble. He did make the right call. So, but I thought well, that's that's called positioning, Dave. If you can be yeah, that Tom close, was in a great spot for that call. <laughs> I think they, uh, you know, sometimes it's situational as well. When uh, it's strategy, when coaches make challenges, and uh, uh, you know the tie cap player followed through a little bit, but but he didn't land on the quarterback with all his weight. He fell off to one side, and Tom was right there, and he made the right call. And it was backed up by the command center as well. It was. It's good to see the Hamilton referees making the right calls. That's right. Um, so I wanted to bring you in again because they've, you did, as well as all the CFL you've done, and everybody knows you from the CFL, um, you did the San Francisco-Denver preseason game, what, about a week and a half, two weeks ago now? That's right, Scott. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go down there. And, uh, and it wasn't just going in and, and going down and doing an NFL game. You know, nobody can just step in and... Uh, you know, a lot of fans think they can, but you just can't step in and uh, referee an NFL football game. So uh, Glenn Johnson, the vice president of football operations for the CFL, put together a deal with Dean Blandino of the NFL, and it was all about training and development, ways to improve officiating. You know, and Glenn understood that in business, you have an opportunity to go down and, and go to different conferences, and you can... You can learn from speakers and learn the way they're doing things, and then you, you pick up on those things and you bring them back to your business and you apply them to your business. And in officiating, we don't have a lot of that. We don't have a lot of opportunity to do that. So this exchange program where we, had, we actually had NFL referees come up to Canada as well and work games in Canada, and three of us had the opportunity, Justin McGinnis out of Edmonton and Dave Hawkshaw, out of Vancouver, also went down, and we took part in the officials' development program of the NFL, which is their program where they train and develop and select and draw their new officials out of their program. Well, and this is a huge deal, and and I mean, again, I think most people would understand that, but you're a CFL guy, you're a Canadian guy, you're a Hamilton guy, but you're also a football fan, and I know you've, as well as watching the CFL, you've grown up watching the NFL, you're a fan of that league, you like that brand of football, so for you to get that opportunity, leaving aside the professional development, I have to believe that that was also a cool thing for you to be able to say, hey, I'm going to do an NFL game. Well, you can't be starstruck with it, and yeah, when when, when I was first told I was doing it, I have to admit, you know, I was really excited. And then it hit me a few hours later, and I got scared. <laughs> really? I got scared, I'll be honest. Really? Yeah, and then, uh, you know, even with over, doing over 250 games in the CFL, and I actually spent 10 years on the sidelines working for the uh, Buffalo Bills in the NFL on the chain crew. So I've experienced the game, I've experienced the large crowds, and, uh, and I'll tell you what I was afraid of. I was afraid of making a mistake because... There is a lot of differences, as you pointed out, between the two leagues and the rules. And, and as an official, you don't want to make a mistake. Nobody ever wants to make that call, right? So putting the work in uh, over this time, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. You know, I started out by uh, going, going through the rule books, comparing the two rules. How big is the NFL rule book that you have to re- review? Uh, a lot bigger than ours. <laughs> they have a big rule book. They have a philosophy rule book. They have another hopper about the applications of the, of the rules. And uh, there's a lot in there. And I actually started a spreadsheet creating, you know, the differences between just the major, the major rule differences. I got about halfway through the book, and I was up to 80 points, 80 differences wow. on that uh, spreadsheet. 
And then I just stopped because I'm probably never going to get back to reading all this stuff again. So, and then I, I really then just focused on the mechanics. Dave, would, were, when you start going through all those things, though, would the average fan who watches football regularly, who's watching every Sunday, they're watching the NFL, would a lot of those differences be a natural? If they, were, if they got to put on the stripes and, put, and grab the whistle, would those be things they would automatically know? Or are you talking little minute no, details? Those are things that, more or less, I knew I was going down. I was, I was, I was going to a training camp in May in, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, where we do our fitness testing and we and we we learn about the new rules and the mechanics and then I was going to a uh, the uh, the main referees training camp in Dallas and at that training camp we write a rules test we write individual rules tests we write a video rules test and then we get together with our crew and we write a rules test and those are those aren't easy and those are the things that that you know you need to know these little rules for the the general fan watching a game wouldn't really notice those things, but in order not to embarrass myself down there, I had to really uh, I had to study and I had to uh, to review all those. Yeah, because this game you were doing was going to be at Mile High Stadium, and there's a few people that fit into that place. Yeah, uh, seventy six thousand one hundred twenty five thousand. But who's counting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny in the in the CFL we wear two earpieces on our ref com our, our communication devices and you've seen the nfl referees they all have the microphones and the nfl wears one earpiece and when i came out at halftime my the ear that wasn't covered with the earpiece it felt like you know how you get your ear plugged when you're just getting off an airplane or something like that just from the the noise and really? the crowd in the stadium and this was a preseason game yeah, yeah. This was this you know? was not uh, Denver going towards the world, the Super Bowl. This is uh, it's amazing. So let me ask the, the the obvious question that everybody, I think, the first thing that everybody would ask would be: You've got two professional leagues. You've got great athletes in both leagues. Is there a vast difference either way in the speed of the games? And that's one thing people have asked. You know what, Scott? It's a bunch of kids playing football. In in both leagues, it's a bunch of kids playing football, and they're, they are slightly different games, right, because it's played on a different field, but they're both big. I think a lot of the uh, positional um, players in the CFL are just different in the, in the NFL, but no. What I actually was surprised at was the, the size of the defensive backs and the size of a lot of the receivers, they weren't that big. I thought they were going to be a lot bigger than that. The, the wideouts, you know, they're, they're your six-foot-four guys, but your, your defensive backs... They have speed, and the one thing I did notice was the leaping ability. And I thought they had uh, they had great closing speed and leaping ability of the defensive backs. And we have some great defensive backs here in the CFL, so I think it's there's very very little difference of separation between the two players. Uh, the linemen are just as big and strong in the CFL as they are in the NFL. Really? I think I do. I believe that, and uh, I saw it firsthand as well. Uh, we have some big linemen here, and they have to be a little bit quicker, too. So our guys are even a little bit quicker and more agile than uh, than some of the NFL guys. And uh, that's why I thought they would not be as big. I mean, I, I, the NFL guys are are generally behemoths, and so, but they don't have as far to travel, and so they don't, you know, they don't have to be as mobile. They are generally, but I, I thought your perception of it was going to come back and say the NFL line guys, if anybody else, the guys in the line were massively bigger. No, our guys are pretty big as well, and uh, you know I get to deal with those guys. They're uh, uh, they're great guys in the CFL and and down there in the NFL as well. And uh, 
this day and age to be a professional athlete, no matter what league you're in, you know, at one time there was a difference. When I was working the chain crews down in Bill in the Bills when they were going through their Super Bowl run, I did notice a difference because I was also working the sticks in uh, in Hamilton games. But things have changed, and and the, the CFL players, you know, they're they're very they're right there in line with the uh, with the NFL. Okay, so Dave, the other thing that really struck me was the sort of good news, bad news, depending what league you're in, um, refereeing, officiating in these two leagues. Because in Canada, the field is obviously much bigger, so you have more gaps, you have more angles that you could potentially see things, but you also have a lot more ground that you have to be looking at and you have to be covering. So there's your good news, bad news in the NFL it's a much smaller field, so you don't have to have as wide a gaze, and you don't have to run as far, but there's a lot more bodies packed into a much smaller space. So which is the more difficult one to officiate? Yeah, and uh, in the NFL, I was, a, I was a field judge, which is a deep sideline official, so mainly ruling on the passing game. In the, in the CFL, I'm a head referee. So I have the play going away from me in the CFL, and that was an adjustment for me going down to the NFL because now I have the play coming at me. And these guys are coming at me pretty quick. And uh, one of the similarities between the two leagues is actually the passing game. The illegal contact rule uh, within five yards of the line of scrimmage, you know, you can make contact with a receiver. The defenders can make a con- contact with a, with a receiver within five yards of the, line of, of the line of scrimmage as long as they're face-up with them. You know, they can't still drill a guy from the back or yep. he's a crossing receiver. He can't step in and, and knock him down. You know, you can make that that front contact with them and then beyond five yards you can't restrict or you can't impede or you can't redirect the receiver so between the two leagues that's very similar but but you're right the space for that to happen in in the nfl is a lot tighter than it is in the cfl so uh, the players are on each other very quickly in the NFL. And, and that would no, make it no motion. And that right. would make it difficult, Dave, I would think when you're making judgment calls on pass interference or something else because you're in such tight quarters anyway. Was that intentional? Was it a bump? What 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 was it? Well, as yeah, as a uh, an official, you're you're still at the same distance. They allow us to move in the CFL, you know, you're not stationary on the sidelines. You can move around and you you know what we're all assigned a certain receiver on a play. So you see your receiver, you watch that play, uh, you work to get into an angle to see it and uh, so I didn't really have a problem there with the size and the distance that I'm watching the receivers from so uh, that worked out uh, I just found the speed uh, them, them coming at me because I wasn't used to it from being in a position in the CFL uh, coming at me they were really coming at me pretty quick any difference in now you're on the sideline so you are right in the line of fire if a coach or players decide that they want to give it to somebody any difference in the way now that you would get worked over verbally from the coaches or from the players or is it you know what in every league they're still going to give it to you well in both leagues uh, you know we have great coaches in our league we have great players in our league they're very respectful and uh, you know they're if they're going to be questioning a call uh, we listen to it we listen to what they have to say and you know what Usually after the game, we'll we'll download the video of the game and we'll look at that play, and it'll be like, hmm, that's what he's asking us. So we respect that, and they just don't, you know, there's no Bobby Knights in our league, in, in either league. They're, they're not just yelling and screaming, and, you know, my dad had to deal with Bobby Knight when he was refereeing NCAA basketball <laughs> and uh, throwing chairs at him and taking <laughs> his team off the court. But our guys are very respectful, and, uh, you know, 
and it's it's great to work for them. One of the other big differences, I, I mean, I, I think it's a big difference. Um, NFL referees, they get to do this full time. They get paid pretty well. I think the average this year is one hundred and seventy three thousand for for their season to be able to do this. So those guys, this is their full time gig, and they can pour all their time into preparing and scouting and all those kind of things. Does that? I mean. The CFL obviously doesn't have that kind of revenue that they can do this, and so most guys do other things as well. Does that make, do you think, a big difference? Does it make working in the CFL a lot harder when you can't have all of your time to work on that craft? Well, the NFL really only has one full-time official, and that's Carl Johnson, and they just hired him recently. Uh, All the other officials have full-time jobs. On top of the 173 average? Yes. Wow. They do, and uh, and you know, you, it, it's not about the money. And they, a lot of them, live their life, and they they just that that money they put it off to the side. And uh, the league really doesn't want you to to count on that money for your living and to support your family with. They, uh, you know, they want you to, uh, you know, you have to have another job, and because uh, one play, one call, one person may decide you're not good enough anymore. So, you know, having a full-time official, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough way to support your, your – it's, it's like a coach, I guess, right? You know, you have a little bit of a struggle, and one person determines that you're no good anymore, and you're gone. So, um, so but, with, yeah, so it's with all the... about the repetition in the practice. And, hmm. and like I said at the start, we don't have a lot of opportunity for that as officials. You know, we can learn the rules and mechanics and – and philosophies, but actually getting out on the field, getting those repetitions, getting the practice. And that's what I had an opportunity to do by going down to Miami. I worked their training camp for a week. I spent a week in Miami, you know, it was 109 Fahrenheit and we're out huh. there every day and I'm, I'm refereeing and, uh, and you know, they're doing one-on-ones, they're doing seven-on-sevens, they're, they're, the team comes together as a scrimmage and, and we're out there officiating all that, getting repetitions and they're doing different scenarios as well they'll put together a, a, a two-minute drill and they'll march down and they'll either try and score or bring in the field goal and they're managing their clock and and that's good for us to be out there refereeing that or they have a whole different series play after play of of third and long so it's just third and long third and long third and long and they do they do that repetition of those plays and we're out there refereeing with them i also spent two weeks in denver uh officiating their their team training camp as well uh the second week the san francisco team came in and it was a joint practice and uh i'll tell you they had twelve thousand fans out for every practice it was just it was an experience everybody wearing orange all the fans there it was like it was like a game out there and the two teams every week just banging heads and going at it and it gave us the opportunity to officiate and also talk to the players and clean things up so when we got into the game we didn't have as many penalties. So, you know, it was, a, it was a great way. I got three good weeks out on the football field of refereeing NFL football before I went into my game. And based on what you're saying and based on the fact that, you know, there aren't, you talked about it, there aren't the number of opportunities to referee games maybe as much as you would want to be able to sharpen and sharpen and sharpen. There, there, there is a limited field of opportunities to do this. So I, I completely can see then the benefit to you and to the other CFL guys going down there. What do you think the NFL officials who came up to Canada and worked in the CFL, what would they get out of that? Well, let me tell you, the, uh, the, the, 
when we went down to Dallas to the training camp, and we had some great feedback from the NFL guys. Number one, they love our game. ESPN carries all every CFL game down in America. There's Thursday night, there's Friday night. I was really surprised how many people watch the game, and they love it. And they have, it's exciting, the kick game, um, you know, all the all the motion, and several of them came up to us wishing that they were selected for the program, that they were able to come up here and officiate in the CFL. And it helps that, you remember when we had the American expansion and we had teams playing in the CFL down in America, and, and we at that time we had some U.S. officials that came in. And those officials went on and credit the CFL, what they learned up here in the CFL for their success into the NFL. They weren't in the NFL at the time. They were like lower-level college officials. Like Bill Vinovich, he re- came up here, refereed in the CFL, learned. He was the head referee in the Super Bowl 49 when the Seattle Seahawks, Russell Wilson, threw the interception at the end of the game. And uh, uh, Bo- Boris Cheeks, he was on my crew this year in the game in Denver. He's refereed two Super Bowls. You know, he got his start here in the CFL. Never worked a major conference game in the NCAA. Trained in the CFL, and uh, so the guys know that. And they know if you can referee CFL football, you can, you can referee almost anything, you know, with our motion and our kicking game. It is a little more chaotic. You learn. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's tough to officiate. It's fast. It is fast. Now, I know you love the CFL. I know that. So I'm not asking you to choose because I know you never would. But if you had the opportunity to go officiate, to referee, to work in the NFL, would that be something? Do you think most CFL officials would say, yeah, you know what, if that opportunity came up, leaving aside the money, because I know that's, you know, but to, to be able to do that, all the CFL players, Canadians and Americans, Dave, we all know this, the NFL would be, for many of them anyway, they would dream of eventually getting there. And maybe that is for the money, but it, it, would this be something you would want to do if they came to you and said, Dave, you know what, can you please come back next year on a full-time basis? What would you do? Well, the NFL, you know, it, it would be a tough decision. I love what Jeffrey Orridge, our commissioner, is doing right now. He's giving the CFL a new look. You know, he's allowing his staff to be proactive and innovative, and, and he's creating a lot of excitement for the fans. You know, like, we just had a rule change mid-season pertaining to um, all the challenges and the coaches' challenges. And, and, you know, that tells you that's a commissioner that, that puts fan enjoy, enjoyment first. You know, the enjoyment of the fan is vitally important to our commissioner. And as a referee in this league, I appreciate that type of leadership. So I'm excited to be a part of the CFL right now. I'm excited about, you know, the game we had uh, in Hamilton there on the weekend and all the points that were put on the board. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a great thing, your, your listeners, you know, uh, uh, you know, being a fan in the stand or, or watching or listening to a game at home. Uh, there's a lot of great things going on in the CFL right now, and I'm just happy to be a part of that right now. Could you do both? Uh, because be they, don't, they generally don't play on the same day. Could you, if, I mean, if the leagues were interested, would it be possible to do NFL and CFL? Well, I did it this year. I did it this summer, so. It but it, but you didn't difficult. do them in the same week. That, that's what I'm saying. Could you be running both yeah. league, doing both leagues simultaneously? Yeah, I was going back and forth. I did like. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, I went to Ticat in Vancouver, and I flew right from Vancouver down to Denver. And, okay. Uh, uh, you know, so I was doing that, and I found it as a challenge. It was tough, tough on the family, being away a lot. Um, no, I don't think somebody could do both at the same time concurrently. It would be very difficult. 
Well, listen. Oh, last thing I got to ask you. Uh, you did a San Francisco game while you were in Denver. Did you stand for the anthem? <laughs> I did. It was the American anthem, and I stood and I put my hat on the. Uh, I put my hat on my heart. So well, because you, know. you know what, that would have been a real uh, a real international incident if the Canadian official decided he was going to go with Colin Kaepernick and take a knee. I, I don't yeah. know how he would have dealt with that. Uh, Dave Foxcroft, really appreciate you taking the time today. Congratulations on doing this. I know it was uh, it had to have been a thrill, and it's it's you know it's a great program, and I'm glad you got to do it. And thank you for spending some time tonight. Uh, Scott, and I just want to mention, if, if anyone out there wants to stay involved in the game, become an official, you can go to the CFL website, cfl.ca, and down at the bottom there's a link there to uh, the CFL official site and on there information about how to become a ref. So I just wanted to mention that it's a great way to stay involved in the game. You know what, and I know, I know that we can use good officials. We can, we can. We're always looking. Dave Foxcroft, thanks for doing this. Great, thanks Scott. That is, uh, you can um, you can go online. There's some pictures of Dave online, and what did he say? Seventy six thousand. I didn't catch the the single digit numbers. Seventy six thousand people. You know what? If you're an an official who is doing your first NFL game, I I can understand why Dave might have been a little nervous. Because you know what? That that is not the venue I'm thinking in which you really want to make a colossal screw up. Now I'm not suggesting that Dave would have. But the thought in the back of your mind that, hey, I could throw my flag here and have 76,000 plus the TV audience, plus the analysts, plus the color commentators, plus the play-by-play guys, plus the newspaper writers, plus the radio people, all talking about what an idiot I am, that, that, that would be some pressure. I'm not going to deny that. That would, be, that would be some pressure. That would almost be as much pressure as being an evening radio host. Well, maybe a little more. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.